Well, praise God today. We, it's a very special day for us because Oleg and Angie are going to be going down into the waters of baptism. And um, both of them are very precious to us. I mean, it's been thrilling to see the work of the Lord in both of their lives over the past, well, in Angie, about the last year. Um, it was about a year ago that Angie and Georgie started to attend the bridge and we got to know them. And we've just been seeing God working more and more in Angie's life, giving her a love for the Word, a love for God's people, a love for Jesus and the cross. So it's been awesome to see that. And in Oleg's life, just kind of a, a, renew, a renewal, a revitalization in the last maybe four months or so. That's, that's what I've noticed since about December. So Oleg's going to share a little bit more later about what's been going on in his life recently. But... Both of them are going to be baptized today. And as I thought about that, I thought about what, what can we do, where can we go in Scripture that would be a fitting place for us to study to prepare ourselves for the baptism that we're going to experience. So I went through the book of Acts mentally, thinking about the different conversions and baptisms that we find there. And I thought of Acts chapter 16 because we have two people that were converted and baptized. We have Lydia, of course a woman, and the jailer, a man. And I thought, how fitting to have a man and a woman <laughs> that we can take a look at their stories. So today, Oleg, you get to pretend that you're the jailer, and Angie, you get to pretend that you're Lydia. So we're going to look at their two stories today. And as we go through, we're going to do what we've been learning to do on Wednesday nights as we've been going through training on how to di multiply disciples. We've learned how to share our story, haven't we? And we share our story by telling three things. What our life was like before we met Christ, how we came to know Christ, and then what our life is like now that we have met Christ. And so as we look at these three persons, or two persons, excuse me, we're going to look at those three aspects of their life. So first of all, we're going to look at Lydia, and then we're going to look at the jailer. But let me just tell you the story in my own words of, of Acts chapter 16. In chapter 16, Paul and Silas and two others, Timothy and Luke, are traveling together on a missionary journey. And they've come to this city of Philippi. And in Philippi, it, it's a Roman colony. And as they come there, their usual practice is to find the synagogue. And on the Sabbath day, they would go to the synagogue and Paul would stand up and he would reason with the Jewish people there in the synagogue about how that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised for them. The problem is, in Philippi, there's no synagogue. You see, you needed 10 male adult Jews to form a synagogue, and evidently there weren't even 10 male Jews in the whole town. In fact, it doesn't appear like there's any male Jews because they end up going down to a riverside where there were some Jewish women who were praying there and worshiping the Lord. So they end up going down to this riverside where there were some Jewish women praying, and Paul starts to speak to those women, and as he does so, the Lord's working on the heart of one of these women. Her name is Lydia, and the Lord opens up her heart, and she responds in repentance and faith to the gospel that Paul is speaking to her about. Well, immediately she's baptized, and then she urges those missionaries to come into her home. Remember, they're just traveling 
itinerant evangelists, they have no place to live. There's no hotels in those times. Um, they're kind of dependent upon the Lord stirring up somebody to invite them to come into their home to stay, and Lydia does that. She seems to be um, a more wealthy person who's got a large home. She had her own household that was living there, but it was also big enough for these four missionaries to come and stay there. So they come on in and they start staying in Lydia's home. Well, they, they begin to go back to that riverside, that place of prayer, and they continue to talk to the people that are there. But there's an interesting situation because there is a slave girl who is demon-possessed. And this demon, this demon gives this slave girl the ability to tell fortunes of what's going to happen. But interestingly, this demon-possessed slave girl, whenever Paul and Silas would be going down to that place of prayer, she would be crying out, These men are sons of the Most High God, and they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now that was true, but Paul just got annoyed with this, this girl saying that over and over. And so finally, she just got on his nerves one too many times. And so he said, In the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And the evil spirit came out that very moment, that very hour. So the slave girl was freed from that evil spirit, and for the first time in a long, long time, she wasn't being controlled by some outside force that had come in and taken possession of her. She was free. Lydia was free. She got these, the household of Lydia, the slave girl's free, and then, interestingly enough, the, the masters that owned that slave girl were so angry and upset that the spirit had been cast out of the slave girl because now they couldn't make any profit. She was making them a lot of money. So they, they arrest Paul and Silas. They drag them before the police. They say, these men are throwing our whole city into confusion. You've got to do something about this. And so the magistrate or the police ordered them to be beaten with rods, and then they delivered them to the jailer, and the jailer threw them into the inner prison, sort of the maximum security area of the prison, the hole, and they were there, and they began to sing and to pray and to sing praises to God in the middle of the night, and as a result of their prayers, God answers the prayer by sending an earthquake. This earthquake was so violent that it, it didn't cause the roof to cave in, but it did everything else. It caused all the doors to fling open and all of the chains on the prisoners' arms to fall off, to break. And so all the prisoners are set free. And the jailer, being woke up by this earthquake, looks around, he calls for lights, and he finds out that the, the, the prison doors are swinging on their hinges. He looks inside the prison cells, and he sees all the bands that have been broken, and he just imagines, well, many of them have probably fled for now. They're probably gone. And so he's thinking, okay, if they're gone, that means I'm going to die, because a jailer would be executed if the prisoners that he was supposed to watch over had left, had, had been able to escape. So he takes his sword, and he's ready to run it through his heart so that he would die right there in the spot. When Paul says, wait a minute, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. Nobody's left. And at this point, this jailer is so overcome, he starts to tremble. He knows that God 
is this isn't coincidence God is doing something miraculous right here in his prison and so he rushes up to Paul and Silas and he gets on his knees before them and he says sirs what must I do to be saved and they say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and when your household believes on the Lord Jesus Christ they'll be saved too so they begin to speak to the whole household all of the family all of the servants within that family and as they spoke to them the gospel the whole household came to faith in Jesus Christ so right then in the middle of the night I don't know where they went if it was down to the riverside or I don't know some pool somewhere but they went right then and they were baptized the whole family they came to faith in Jesus Christ so there's the story from Acts chapter 16 let's go back now and let's just pull it apart and let's take a real close look at what was taking place so first of all let's look at Lydia what was her life like <clears throat> before she met Christ and there are three simple things I want to share with you about her first of all she's a woman she was a woman you say well, what's important about that well, what's important about that is that she's the very first woman in the book of Acts who singled out as an individual who was converted. Now, many, many, many people have been converted by the time you get to Acts chapter 16, right? 3,000 were converted on the day of Pentecost. A couple chapters later in Acts, you have 5,000 converted. Then it says a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So many, many people in Jerusalem have been saved. Um, in addition to that, we find Cornelius has been saved in his household. The Ethiopian eunuch has been converted. Paul has been converted. Lots of people have been saved. But Lydia has the honor of being the very first woman who is singled out as one that was converted. So there's something important that the Holy Spirit wants us to learn about her. Second thing we learn about her is that she was wealthy. We know this because it says in Acts 16, verse 14, that she was a seller of purple fabrics. Isn't that interesting? She sold one kind of cloth, purple. That's all she was into. It'd be kind of like us going into a fabric store, and wherever you look, there's cloth everywhere, but it's all purple. And you're saying, why in the world would she only sell purple fabric? Well, the reason is, is because purple was very, very difficult to, uh, to find in that day, and so it was very expensive. See, back then, you couldn't just go and order any kind of color that you wanted. Today, we can do that, can't we? We have dyes, we have artificial um, dyeing processes that will make a piece of fabric any color we want. But in that day, they had to find something in nature that would naturally color a fabric. And it was very difficult to find anything that would create the color purple. But in Thyatira, where she was from, they had discovered a shellfish, a rare shellfish, a very small one, but that if you were to take it, at the back of its neck, it would secrete this clear fluid. But if that clear fluid was applied to fabric, it would change the fabric into a dark purple color. And so what they did is they began to harvest these 
mollusks, these shellfish, and it would take thousands of them just to create a couple of yards of, of uh, fabric colored purple because there was only a small amount that would come out of each one. It was interesting how they discovered this. The story goes like this. There was a certain dog that just loved to eat these shellfish. <laughs> and so he would go down and he had figured out a way to crack the shell and to eat the, the meat inside the shell. And one day he was coming back from eating these shellfish and his mouth was all purple. And so the people put two and two together and they discovered, oh, there's something about that particular shellfish that creates the color purple. And so they had developed this, this process, this manufacturing process of creating purple fabric by taking thousands of these, killing them, secreting the fluid, collecting the fluid, and then, and then covering the fabric with this fluid so that it turned this dark purple color. That's why purple was the color of royalty. That's why kings and princes wore purple. Do you remember Luke 16, when there was a rich man and Lazarus? The rich man dressed in what? Purple, every day it says. And he fared sumptuously, according to the King James. He, he had all kinds of delicate things to eat. He was a very rich individual, but he dressed in purple every day. So, purple fabric was so rare that it was extremely expensive. And so one historian said that it was worth its weight in silver. That's how expensive it was to buy this particular fabric. So Lydia was one who sold purple fabrics, which tells me she was wealthy because she had to be able to have enough money to have the stock to sell. She had to be able to buy all this purple fabric so that she can resell it to other people. Also, we know that she was wealthy enough to have a home that was large enough for all of these people to live in. Not only herself and her household, but now she's got Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke all staying with her in her home. And we know Luke is with her even though we don't read about his name specifically because in chapter 16, the narrative goes from they did this and they did that to we did this and we did that. And we know that Luke is the author of this particular book. And so Luke has joined them. So the missionary band is comprised of at least four people by this time. So she's got a large home, she's got a, a, a flourishing business that's making her quite wealthy. So she's a woman, she's wealthy, and then lastly we find out she's a worshiper. Because it says in verse 14, she was a worshiper of God. Now, that's a unique expression, a unique phrase. And it's usually used in the Bible and in extra-biblical literature for a, Jew, a Gentile who has become a proselyte to the Jewish faith. So this is a God-fearer. This is someone who was a Gentile. They were raised as a Gentile, but they became convinced of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead of worshiping all the gods and goddesses of Rome, they have come to believe there is only one true and living God, the God that the Jews worshipped. And so they have joined the Jewish people, and on the Sabbath day, they would join with them and they would worship this God. They would pray to him. So Lydia probably was raised, born raised as just a Gentile, but somewhere along the line she'd been converted to Judaism. And now she's worshiping the God of the Jewish faith. Now, how did she meet Christ? 
We've already seen what her life was like before Christ. A converted Gentile. She's become wealthy. She's a, a woman of means. But how did she meet Christ? Well, first of all, let's think about the providence of God in her life. The providence of God simply means how God overrules everything to bring about His purposes. God had, had brought these missionaries into her very city, and then He had brought these missionaries down to the very riverbank where she was worshiping God in order to speak to her. But it's interesting because originally Paul and Silas didn't want to go to Philippi. They wanted to go to Asia. And the Holy Spirit said no. And then they wanted to go to Bithynia, which was north of where they were. And the Holy Spirit said no. You see, they were just, they were coming through the region of, of Galatia. And to the north was Bithynia. To the south was Asia. They've already been east, so they're not going to go back that direction. The Holy Spirit says, don't go north and don't go south. And they said, where, where are we supposed to go then, Lord? The only other direction left was west. So they kept going west until they couldn't go any farther because they ran into the Aegean Sea. So they're there on the seacoast. They can't go north. They can't go south. And so they start seeking God. Okay, Lord, what are we supposed to do? You didn't want us to go north or south. We've already been east. Here we are. We can't go any further west. What do we do, Lord? And do you remember what God does? He gives Paul a dream in the middle of the night. And in that dream, there's a man from Macedonia. And he's saying, Come over and help us. So when Paul wakes up, he tells the rest of the team, I believe God has just spoke. God wants us to cross the Aegean Sea to Macedonia, and he wants us to go over there and preach the gospel there. So that's what they do. They, they cross the sea. The, one of the leading cities of Macedonia was Philippi, and so they travel to Philippi, and that's, where, that's how they end up there. Isn't that an interesting providence of God? That God would close the door in one direction, close the door in another direction. When they couldn't go any further, God would give them this dream and tell them, okay, this is what I want you to do. So the providence of God has, has led them there. It's interesting that they went to where the people were. Do you remember the Great Commission? The Great Commission is go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. The Great Commission is not wait for the people to come to you. We've been talking about that on Wednesday nights in our training. The Great Commission is God has called us to go to where people are. And that's exactly what these missionaries were doing. They were going. It's a good lesson for us. Not only do we see the providence of God, but we see the grace of God, don't we? Because in verse 14, it says, The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. What does that tell you was the condition of her heart beforehand? Closed. If the Lord opened it, it had to have been closed before. You can't open something that's not closed, can you? <laughs> so her heart was closed to the gospel, and then the Lord opened it up. Folks, this tells us that when someone becomes a Christian, God has to do something in the heart for that to happen. It's not enough for a missionary to come from hundreds of miles away and come right to the very place where she's at and speak to her the life-giving words, 
All of that's good. All of that's necessary, but that's not enough for someone to become a Christian. God himself has to open up somebody's heart or they will never be saved. Their heart will remain closed forever unless God opens it up. See, that's the condition of the natural man. His heart is closed off to God. As we go out and knock on doors and we talk to people, the people we're talking to have closed hearts. Now, they may hear with their ears what we're saying, but that's not enough. They've got to hear with their heart if they will ever be saved from their sin. You know, the Bible says in John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. They have to be drawn. I've heard lots of preachers say on the radio, Jesus Christ has done everything he could possibly do for you. Now it is all up to you. If you will ever be saved, it's all up to you. But that's not true, is it? If it was all up to Lydia, she would still be lost. Because the Lord did something that she couldn't do for herself. The Lord opened up her heart to give her a desire and a love for Jesus Christ and a hatred for sin and a longing to be saved. And so that's why we pray for people to be converted. If it was all up to the sinner, why pray? God's not going to do anything. But God is going to do something. And God has to do something if anybody becomes a Christian. In fact, there might be some people here this morning that are not converted. If that's the case, you need God to work on your heart to make you a new person, to give you a desire to leave sin behind and to hold on to Jesus Christ. In fact, Ezekiel 36 says that when someone's converted, the Holy Spirit takes out the old heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. That's what God did graciously for Lydia. Romans 9.16 says, So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who shows mercy. So we've seen the providence of God ordered for her. The grace of God in opening up her heart. Thirdly, the gospel of God. Because here in verse 14, it says, the Lord opened up her heart to respond to something. What is she responding to? The things that Paul was speaking to her about. What do you think those things were? What do you think Paul's going to be speaking to her about? It's, it's plain, isn't it? He's speaking about Jesus Christ. That's what he always spoke about, wherever he went. Jesus was always the one that was the, the subject of his message. So here is Paul speaking of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, how he died for sinners and then rose from the dead. And as this is happening, the Lord is accompanying the preaching of the gospel by opening up the heart so she responds to the things spoken of by Paul. Have you ever heard that expression? Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. People say St. Francis of Assisi was the one who made that famous. You ever heard that? that? That's not a good statement. It's like saying, feed the hungry at all times, and if necessary, use food. 
Well, there's no other way to feed the hungry than to give them food. And there's no other way to preach the gospel than to use words. You see, people have come up with that because they're uncomfortable speaking the gospel. And so they do things like uh, acts of kindness for people, which are good and necessary. Um, you know, maybe they'll go over and minister to them when they need something or give them rides or try to show by their life a good, wholesome Christian life that hopefully will be attractive to them. All those things are good, but you can't preach the gospel to anyone without using words. We have to overcome our fear of man and we have to do what the apostles did if anyone like Lydia is ever going to come to faith. You see, you can't just go meet someone like Lydia, and then, you know, try to, try to love her into the kingdom. It's good to love someone like Lydia, but unless you open up your mouth and do what Paul did, Lydia's never going to be saved. Never. You cannot be saved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need a message to be saved. So I'm just encouraging all of us to daily make it our prayer, Lord, overcome the fear of man that's in this heart. Let me be bold for you to speak forth the gospel to people that are lost. And I believe that if we will sincerely pray that prayer, God will answer it. And he will help us to become bold and, and people that are not afraid of, of man or being rejected by man, but will go and will actually tell people what they need so that they can avoid hell, everlasting hell, and receive the gift of everlasting life. So, how did she meet Christ? God ordered it that he would send these missionaries to her by closing doors in every other direction and then giving a dream. Then God himself opens up her heart as Paul speaks the life-giving message of the gospel. The providence of God, the grace of God, and the gospel of God. Now, what happened afterwards? What was her life like after she met Christ? Well, there's a couple things that we notice here. Verse 15, and when she and her household had been baptized, how long did it take for her to get baptized after she came to faith? Seems like it's immediate. The very next thing that we're told as soon as the Lord opens up her heart to respond to the gospel is she gets baptized. She wants to publicly identify with Jesus Christ. Paul had just told her about Jesus and so she says, I believe. I believe. What do I do now? Paul says, be baptized. You need to identify with Jesus Christ. And she did. And it wasn't just her, but her whole household. Her whole household. Her family. Whoever that was and however that many were, we don't know. It may have included servants, which was common in that particular culture in that particular day. So there could have been many. But this whole social circle this whole oikos the greek word for household is coming to faith in jesus christ so she's baptized not in order to get saved because we find that she was converted in verse 14 the lord opened up her heart she responded to the gospel in verse 14 in repentance and faith but now as an act of obedience to jesus christ she goes under the waters of baptism to signify that she had identified with Jesus. Baptism is sort of like a wedding ring. Now you can put on a wedding ring and not be married, right? 
Some people are baptized and they're never converted. Baptism in and of itself doesn't convert, but it does show forth a, a person's profession of faith, just like my wedding ring is an outward symbol that I'm married. See? So it's, it's a symbol identifying somebody as one who has made a commitment to Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. So baptism is the very first thing that results from her life of faith. Secondly, hospitality. Notice what she says. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And it says, and she prevailed upon us. <laughs> so she's urging them. It's almost like she has to overcome their resistance. Now, why do you suppose Lydia would be so insistent that she wanted these missionaries to come and stay at her home? Any thoughts on that? Any guesses? She okay. I'm sure she did. She's got so many questions, right? So I'm sure that's part of it. Yes, there you go. Luke chapter 10, when, when Jesus sent out the 70 to go from town to town and to preach the gospel and heal the sick, he said, you're going to meet certain people and they're going to invite you into their house. And if it's a person of peace, stay there. Eat whatever they set before you. Don't go around from house to house. Just stay in that home and invest. Pour your life into that person. Because they're going to reach their oikos, their household. They're going to reach their community, their city. So I believe here we've got a person of peace in Lydia. God had prepared her to receive the gospel when it came to her. And now she is going to be one of the people in Philippi that is going to help to reach that whole city. So hospitality. She invites them in. She loves these messengers because they have brought to her the life-giving word. She's no longer lost. She's no longer guilty. She's no longer condemned. She has everlasting life. And she's so happy and joyful about that that she has to share it. And one of the things she can just do is invite these missionaries in to stay. She doesn't mind putting more food on the table. She's thrilled that she can do anything for the Lord that has saved her. And here are his representatives. Here she's going to take care of them. So baptism and hospitality. Do you see that her life is already being transformed? She wants to show it by baptism. She wants to show it by being hospitable to these men. She wants to show it by getting the gospel out to other people, including her household and people that live around her. So there we find the transformed life of Lydia. Let's look at the jailer. First of all, his life before he met Christ. Lydia is interesting because she's the first woman that's singled out in, in Scripture in the New Testament to be converted in the book of Acts. The jailer is also unique because think about everybody else whom we're told was converted in the book of Acts. Every single other person had at least some kind of knowledge of God. Even the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 had a, a level of knowledge of the true God because they had the first five books of the Bible that they had accepted. Even Cornelius was a God-fearer. He gave alms and he worshipped God even though um, he was, he'd never become a Jew and he had never been converted by the message of Jesus Christ, yet he knew about the true and living God. 
The Jews on the day of Pentecost had all the scriptures. But here, in this Philippian jailer, you've got a heathen. You've got a person who is an employee of the Roman government. Now, what kind of religion did the Romans have in the first century? Who do they believe in? Caesar. I'm sorry? Oh, Caesar. That's true. That's true. And in addition to that, they had dozens and dozens of gods and goddesses that they would worship. So this, if he was a Roman, and if he was a Roman uh, employee right there in Philippi, no doubt he was brought up to believe in all these various gods and goddesses. He was brought up to believe that the Caesar was to be worshipped, the emperor was to be worshipped as God. Polytheism. He was a heathen. He had no knowledge of the true and living God. Not only that, but he was a hardened man. And you see that when Paul and Silas uh, were brought before the magistrate, the magistrate had them beaten, he had them delivered over to the jailer, and the jailer takes them and throws them into the inner prison. Now they've done excavations, and they have actually found in the city of Philippi an ancient jail. And we don't know if it's the same one as this or not. But in that jail, they found in the middle of it, there was this hole, a deep hole, and they surmised that that hole was probably the inner prison. Prisoners would be lowered down into this hole, dark, pitch dark, and it would probably be foul and filthy because there's no bathroom down there. So the human excrement is going to be down there, it's going to be disgusting. But it was a place to put people for maximum security. They put them down there, and this, this uh, jailer just threw them down into this, this pit, this hole. Maximum security. And then he had their feet fastened in the stocks. So usually what that meant is that in these stocks you would, you would pull the legs as far apart as you could and then clamp them. So what's that going to do? It's going to cause muscle cramping. After a while, it's going to be just unbearable torture and suffering. So, so this man is not a nice, compassionate, friendly individual. He's just completely hardened. He's used to dealing with criminals on a daily basis all the time. He's used to dealing with thugs. He's got no sympathy in his heart for them. He's just kind of a hardened person. He's a heathen person, and he's hardened to others. So how does he meet Christ? How does he meet Christ? Well, number one, the Lord used persecution to bring these missionaries to him. Persecution in the lives of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. Do you ever wonder, Lord, why would you, why would you let Paul and Silas go through such great suffering? I mean, they're your servants. They're doing your bidding. They're preaching your gospel. And let you're letting them be beaten with rods and then thrown into this pit, this hole, and having their legs fastened in stocks. Lord, why would you do that? Well, what's the answer? Because he has somebody that he intends to save, and this is the way he's going to make contact between the missionaries and this jailer. Now, 
in the providence of God, the Lord had brought missionaries to Lydia, but he'd, he'd, he'd opened up her heart very quietly and sweetly and gently. But not in this case. <laughs> he doesn't do this quietly and sweetly and gently, does he? He uses a great earthquake to convict this man and to open his eyes that God is among him. God will use very different things in the lives of different people to get their attention if he intends to save them. So in the life of the jailer, he uses persecution. He allows the suffering of Paul and Silas. And I find this just delightful, that when they're suffering and being tortured down in this hellhole, this rank, foul, disgusting hellhole, what are they doing? They're worshiping God, and they're praying. I wonder who they were praying for. <laughs> I bet they were praying for the jailer and all the other people there in that jail cell, that God would save them. They're praying that the Lord would give them the strength to go through this time of suffering and maintain a good testimony. And, and notice what it says. Let me see if I can find the verse. Verse 25, but about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were doing what? Listening. Listening to them. So do you think that they're quietly singing? Just kind of whispering these songs? They're singing loud with gusto, with enthusiasm because how else is everybody else in the prison going to be able to hear what they're singing? Folks, this is a good example for us. Not just when we're going through good times, but when we're going through bad times, worship God and worship Him with all your heart. Worship Him with gusto. When we come together on Sunday, our singing ought to be loud. It ought to be with conviction. We ought not to be embarrassed that someone might hear us singing. We ought to, even if we have a lousy voice, we ought to sing. And we ought to sing, you know, raise the roof. Because we believe the words we're singing. So here, the Lord uses persecution to bring these missionaries to him. Secondly, the Lord brings an earthquake to convict him. It's interesting, this is a great earthquake, a violent earthquake. But all it does is open up the prison doors and snap the chains that are binding the prisoners. You would think of earthquake of that magnitude, you'd have the sides falling down and the roof falling in and chaos going on everywhere. All it does is snap open the prison doors and snap off the chains. It reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're thrown into that fiery furnace. And then there's another one that they see who looks like the Son of God. And it doesn't burn anybody up. All it does is burn the ropes that had bound them when they were cast in there. Same kind of deal. <laughs> the Lord is sovereignly using this earthquake not to destroy these men, but to convict this jailer that he's among him, that he is true and real. Now, this jailer had probably heard the testimony of that demon-possessed slave girl these men are bondservants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. No doubt everybody in the community had been hearing her, you know, just yell that day after day after day. So there's been this, this uh, 
testimony that's been going on, this reputation that these men are somebody special. <laughs> the devil was actually doing them a favor of sorts, even though he didn't, Paul and Silas didn't like the devil advertising for God, and so eventually they cast the spirit out. But anyway, people had heard about who they were through this demon-possessed slave girl. Not only that, but this jailer had seen the meek and humble and forgiving spirit of Paul and Silas. That when they were abused and persecuted, they didn't lash out. That instead of, of railing on their persecutors, they prayed to God and they worshipped Him instead. So they saw the testimony of these men. They saw that, heard the testimony of the slave girl. And then he sees and experiences this earthquake that is supernatural. And he can only come to one conclusion. The God that these men are talking about is the true and living God. And he starts to tremble. And he falls down at their feet. Now before, he's just roughly and rudely throwing them into the hole. He doesn't care about them at all. Now he's falling at their feet. What does he address them as? What does he call Paul and Silas? Sirs. Sirs. A term of respect. He had no respect before this. You see, God is starting to work on his heart. He sees that these are the representatives of the Most High God who do proclaim the way of salvation. And he knows that God, only God could account for this earthquake. And so he falls down at their feet and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the missionaries say, Believe. 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 Folks, do you believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone? Justification means to be counted righteous. This is the doctrine that Martin Luther uncovered in the early 1500s. It had been suppressed by the Roman Catholic Church for hundreds and hundreds of years where the church had lost sight of the pure and simple gospel that a man could be made right with God through faith alone. Now, of course, faith includes the idea of repentance because you cannot turn to Christ unless you turn away from something else. So repentance is simply the, the one side of the coin and faith is the other. They, they include each other. But we are justified, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So the Lord used persecution. The Lord used this great earthquake Instead of doing something quietly and gently in the life of Lydia, he knows in order to get this hardened heathen guy, I'm going to have to really shake his life up. And so a violent earthquake comes upon the whole prison. And he's awakened. He's awakened to the reality of God. And then notice verse 34. And he brought them into his house, and he said, food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Verse 32 says, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So, the whole household believed 
The whole household ends up getting baptized because they spoke the word of the Lord to the whole household. So what is, how does he meet Christ? The Lord uses persecution. The Lord uses an earthquake. And then he, as that word of the Lord is spoke to this jailer and his household, they all believe. God opens up their hearts. Not just Lydia, but now this jailer and his household, and they come to faith in Jesus Christ. What happens afterwards? What's his life like after he met Christ? Well, interestingly, it's almost a mirror image of Lydia. Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house, and he took them that very hour. Now, when did that earthquake hit? Do you remember the time? Yeah, it was midnight. So the earthquake comes at midnight. This is sometime after that. Maybe one o'clock or two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning. It's still the middle of the night. They're not even going to wait. They're not even going to get some sleep and get up the next day. That very night, they go down and get baptized. Now, I don't know if they went down to the riverside where Lydia was baptized or someplace else, but they found a body of water deep enough to be immersed in. At least that's what I believe happened. <laughs> and they're baptized. And not only that, but they also show hospitality, just like Lydia did. He says in verse 34, And he brought them into his house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced greatly. Just like Lydia, he wants them to come into his home. And he takes out whatever food he's got, and he spreads it out to them. And not only that, but notice verse 33. It says, He washed their wounds. What a transformation is going on. Before he's inflicting their wounds. You know, they have wounds everywhere. They've been beaten with rods. They've got lacerations and open wounds. They're bleeding from head to toe. They've, they've been thrown into this hole. They've been treated roughly and unkindly. And now... He's deeply grieved over how he's treated these guys. The Lord has changed this man. You can tell, he, you can already see evidence that he's been born again. Because instead of treating them roughly, now he's, he's washing their wounds. Maybe he's bandaging those wounds. He's doing everything he can to, to make up for the sin of how he has treated them originally. And then he invites them into his home. He spreads food before them. And then the last thing we find about them is that it says he rejoiced greatly. So, how did his life change? Baptism, hospitality, kindness, and joy. He rejoiced greatly. He's just gone from death to life. He's just gone from condemnation to justification. He's just gone from being lost to being found. Don't you know that's going to produce joy in somebody's life? And so he's rejoicing greatly. The whole household's rejoicing. We've come to know the true and living God. We're not going to be damned. We're going to be saved for all eternity. Can you remember back to your conversion? And can you remember the joy that you experienced when you first came to Jesus? I sure can. I remember that it was a different kind of joy than I'd ever known before. I remember singing at the top of my lungs, driving down the road, worshiping God, because I was saved. 
I remember walking through grocery stores, singing out loud praise songs, just getting my apples and bananas and putting them in my cart, singing to the Lord. Just new joy that flooded my heart. Has that ever happened to you? Where the, a new joy invaded your soul because you were saved? <laughs> that, that ought to be part and parcel of every born-again child of God. This new joy comes in because Jesus has come in. Let's draw out some lessons this morning. And I have four, four of them I want to share with you. Four things I see of importance for us. Number one, we need to go to the lost, just like Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke did. They didn't remain back in Antioch or remain back in Jerusalem and say, Lord, if you want to save them, just bring them here. We'll open our church doors and they can come in. They went. They got out of their comfort zone and they left and they went to where lost people were. And God's calling us to do the same thing. We need to go. Not come, go. Secondly, as we're seeking to, to bring the gospel to lost people, don't just look for individuals. Seek for the whole household. Because do you see how Paul's doing that? He's going after the whole household of Lydia. Then he's going after the whole household of the jailer. And he, he's able to win the entire family. All of them come to Christ at the same time. So when we're going around sharing the gospel and we, we say, is it okay if I come back and share another story with you? This is what you do. You say, do you, do you know anybody else who might be interested in hearing the stories of Jesus? Who do you know? Why don't you call them up and ask them to come on over and when we come back, we'll tell the story to everybody. Fill up your house. <laughs> Remember when Jesus came, or I'm sorry, when Peter came to Cornelius' house? Cornelius had gathered up everybody and the whole house was full of people that heard what he was saying. So, go to the lost. Secondly, seek the entire household. Number three, baptize new believers immediately. And I'm telling that to you because I want you to have the joy of baptizing someone that you've led to faith. In the Bible, there is no criteria of a certain standing, a spiritual standing of an individual that is eligible to baptize. You know, in the traditional model, we reserve that for the pastor, or at least the elders of the church. But think about it biblically. Who baptized the Apostle Paul? Ananias did. What do we know about Ananias? Who was he? Nobody. <laughs> He's a disciple. That's all we know about him. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't even a deacon. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a prophet. He was just like you. Just a regular Christian. And he baptized an apostle. Well, someone who was going to become an apostle. Um, who baptized the Ethiopian eunuch? Philip did. The one that led the eunuch to Christ baptized him. I want you to lead someone to Christ and have the joy of baptizing that person. And when you do, as soon as you can ascertain that they've come to faith and repentance, as evidenced by the fact that they're willing for Jesus to become their Lord, their boss, I would ask a few questions. Are you willing right now to turn from this old life of sin? Are you willing to put all your trust in Jesus and not in yourself any longer? And are you willing to let Jesus Christ take control of your life from this day forward? If they are, 
then they're ready to be baptized. Because those are the signs, the evidences of conversion. Go to the lost, seek the household, baptize immediately, and four, expect transformed lives. If God opens the heart, the life is going to be transformed. They're, they're going to see things like a desire to be baptized, a desire to invite you in, <laughs> a joy, a new joy that they've never experienced before. And if we were to look at the rest of the New Testament, we'd say things like a life of holiness, a life of love for Christ, hatred for sin, desire for righteousness, a willingness to share the gospel with lost people. These are all evidences of new faith, new life. So, these are the things I'd like you to consider. I want to pray in just a moment, and then I'd like us to, to gather in groups of two or three, and I'd like you to talk amongst yourselves as what one thing do you feel like the, the Lord was speaking to you this morning through the Word? And I want you to pray for each other that you would actually do that in the coming week. That whatever it was, that you pr pray for each other that you would actually put into practice what the Lord is speaking to you through His Word. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the examples of Lydia and the jailer and their households and how you broke through and how your power was manifest in their lives. Lord, we long to see you do the same thing today. We long to see you use us and to see households come to faith. Lives being transformed. People being born again. Lord, I thank you that I see evidence of that and the two individuals today that are going to be baptized. That's awesome, Lord. We give you thanks and praise for doing that miracle of regeneration. But Lord, would you do it again? And would you use common, ordinary, everyday Christians filled with your Spirit to do that? And I pray, Lord, now as we gather in smaller groups, I pray, Father, that you would help us to be open with each other and to share and to, to begin praying with one another, that you would actually help us to apply the word to this week. In Jesus' name, amen.